Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School here at the ANU, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anna Greta, it's it's good to be back, and what a great conversation we had last week with Quentin Grafton, Um, a very, very timely conversation around energy security, but also water security and food security. Quentin's capacity to weave together those three individually extraordinarily complex problems, energy, water, food security, weaving it into interrelated, interdependent factors was just extraordinary. And I'm going to go back and listen to that podcast again and again. And I think part of what he gave me was, again, uh, a a remarkable insight into what the benefits of integrative thinking are or, or the intersectionality, I think, that Yasmin Poole had touched on the week beforehand. Some of these complicated problems really do benefit from, you know, a a variety of different perspectives Um, and Quentin's view was so generous. Yes, and he summed it up so beautifully and simply at the end by saying, connect the dots and what a powerful message to leave us with. Absolutely. So as our regular listeners know, Policy Forum Pod is based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and we offer a range of degree programs and short courses, ranging from environmental management to climate change, national security, and of course, public policy. To find out more about what we have to offer, visit our website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And... Now on to today's episode, which Anna Greta, I know you've been looking forward to as as much as I have. This is part of our post-election analysis of some of the issues that were critical during the campaign and are now key policy challenges facing the new government. Anna Greta, would you like to share what we'll be discussing on today's episode? Absolutely. Look, Australia is fortunate to be home to one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world with over 60,000 years of custodianship, knowledge, connection, identity. And Sharon, for me, when I was sitting watching the results of this most recent federal election, I'm going to confess that the moment of, of peak emotion was actually when Prime Minister Anthony Albanese began his victory speech on election night by saying... I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. That was quite a moment in time for all Australians. And whilst we welcome this commitment to implement the Uluru Statement, it is set against an historic backdrop of colonisation, dispossession and systemic racism, such as the white Australia policy in the stolen generation. There is much in Australia's history that needs not simple acknowledgement but deep truth-telling and genuine reconciliation that doesn't place the burden on Indigenous Australians but celebrates the extraordinary heritage and their culture. So what does Australia's new parliament mean for Australia's First Nations people? What role does voice, treaty and truth have in the way that we take the next crucial step as a nation? 
and what must policymakers and the general Australian public take forward to walk alongside Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? To unpack these questions, we are delighted to have a wonderful colleague from the Australian National University join us for today's discussion. Sharon, could you introduce our guest? I would love to. We have with us today the extraordinary Dr. Virginia Marshall. She is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, uh, what we call REGNET here at ANU, and also the Fenner School of Environment and Society. Virginia has quite a bio. She's a lawyer and a solicitor. She's a former associate and researcher with the Federal Court of Australia. She's a member of the New South Wales Law Society and the Women Lawyers Association of New South Wales. Virginia has received a long list of awards and recognitions of her incredible work, including the Distinguished Women Scholars um, Award from the University of Victoria in Canada and the Department of Primary Industries Hidden Treasures Honour Roll here in Australia. And much of, of that recognition has been for the amazing work she has done with regional communities. Virginia's also been a regular guest and an occasional host of both Policy Forum Pod and our sister pod, Democracy Sausage. Virginia, welcome back to the pod. It is great to have you back with us. Oh, yuridu marang. It's wonderful to be here. So, it does feel as though we are in quite a different world from when last time we spoke, Virginia, and the new government has brought with it a strong sense of hope and optimism for the future. And we've been talking a lot about that on the pod over the last couple of weeks. With Prime Minister Anthony Albanese pledging to implement the Uluru Statement from the Harding Fool, you know, it has felt like we, we really have had a sea change. This is unlike anything we've seen in the past decade. I wonder if you could begin by talking us through what the the impact of the Uluru Statement from the Heart can have and why it is so very important for our nation. Well, I think uh, uh, there are many things that are very important to our nation and, and Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, is one. And and it is because it's it's directly speaking from that healing place, um, and restoration, and, and that is really critical for this nation to rebirth. If we don't have uh, that creative space, that healing space, that restoration uh, amongst uh, our fellow Australians and, and really um, beyond into our children's children, uh, we won't really uh, secure uh, a very... Um, Content and uh, and and just people, and, and and it's really odd because Australia has fought for human rights in so many different um, international areas, such as the United Nations and and the Declaration of of Human Rights, and, and we've had incredible um, groups of people uh, converse about these issues and and why human rights are important. And, and one of those particular areas that I see that really comes out of Uluru's statement from the heart is also for um, the issues of Julian Assange, having that healing space, having the restoration, that um, bringing a, 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 a man home to his family and restoring him uh, with his, his, his parent and, uh, and his, his loved ones, you know, I think, that's a really important example, and we saw that with Black Lives Matter. Uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart was right there, um, full centre, and many people were protesting across the world after George Floyd, and especially in Australia on the unjust incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also the increased incarceration of Aboriginal women and also deaths in custody. Uh, it, it just seemed that this was a really important uh, direction that we're going in now, talking about Uru's statement from the heart. But I also am very hopeful that we'll start talking about initiating that discussion on federal treaty because we, we've had a couple of opportunities across the states, but the most important uh, beginning of that conversation with the, the foreground of Uru's statement from the heart is a treaty, uh, a contract between, a social contract between um, uh, the nation state and with all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not only traditional owners, 
but all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. And we need to start now because we know that life is very short and also the electoral cycle that we're in uh, is also very short. So we need to proceed and jump in with all of that in mind. Virginia, a little later in in this conversation, we want to talk about treaty um, in a bit more detail. But I'm just wondering at at this point, as we kind of open the conversation, I'd love to hear from you whether, you know, the extent to which you're feeling that sense of hope about the future and whether you think there is now with the the new government um, a greater opportunity for the voices of Indigenous Australians to really play an important part in our policy debates, in our politics and, and in our public discussions. I think that's critical and and also it starts in the family home, you know, really expressing um, different views but being able to debate it and, and provide evidence and passion and I, and I think that that is, is got to really flow on to um, Australia and this new government because what we've had for many years and, and we know what this feels like is, is no hope and uh, just much burden, changes in climate, uh, severe um, disadvantage, marginalisation of people's views. Uh, and we've, we've also seen many royal commissions, especially the royal commissions into um, abuse of, of children and, and, and youth and adults, which is, is also a, a very immense and solemn space for the country to go through. So when we've had this new opportunity now with this uh, federal government, it, it does appear that um, we seem to all be jumping into a very a new experience that we haven't had uh, since Kevin Rudd and then previous to that um, Paul Keating and uh, just a, for a few names and Gough Whitlam uh, who also provided an incredible jump into the ocean, so to speak, instead of the swimming pool uh, and made some incredible um, infrastructure and and also structural changes to to Australia as a nation. So I, I'm very um, hopeful, but it means that we can't stand still. Uh, we all have to uh, really make the best of what we we have every day, and and also to make sure that we're including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and and increasing the critical mass in intellectual um, institutions. Uh, such as universities and and a whole range of of different areas because uh, there isn't the critical mass yet of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in universities and also in the workplace. Um, Seniority is an issue for uh, people of colour and we need to work on those issues quite a bit. So I I think that it is hopeful but we we also need to um, have more of an opportunity to experience that hope uh, because we have so many people in Australia uh, homeless and increasingly so. The rents are ridiculously high. Um, the, the price of homes and people and families trying to, to enter that market is, is just nothing that I've ever seen before and I'm sure uh, many of uh, the listeners will feel exactly the same and, and that's not a just place for Australia. We have no right to expect that some people should be homeless and if it increases that we should accept that. We should never increase um, our uh, expectations that really go along with the flow and just expect that we we have some homeless people in Australia. We really need to make sure that uh, everybody has a roof over their head and and, and a sound one uh, and a healthy space and a healing space. So, you know, there's so much that's possible and, um, you know, for the momentum of hope to keep on um, producing results month after month and through the, the challenges um, for interest rates rising, et cetera. So I think that hope and, and also that we can see things are changing for the better, that will also encourage Australians uh, to, to keep on going and, and, and to remain positive. 
I think they're such great points, Virginia. And, you know, I, I have thought over the last couple of weeks that we all, I think it's fair to say, have this sense of euphoria that there's been change, there's been change for good, there's this sense of hope. But of course, we still need to hold our parliamentarians, our decision makers to to account. We need to continue to, to advocate for, for justice, as well as feeling that sense of hope. And I, from your perspective as, as a lawyer, what kinds of processes do you think we need in place? What are the first steps we need to take to move from hope to justice? You know, you mentioned, you know, housing, and it, it does seem to me that one of the critical things we need to do is a, a reframing of how we think about housing so that we actually think about it as a basic human right, rather than, as as John Falzon has described on a previous pod, as a speculative sport. But I would really love to hear your thoughts, Virginia, on, on how we go through that process of moving from hope to justice. Well, I think hope and justice go hand in hand, and you're quite right. But moving towards justice isn't isn't just a euphoric um, uh, understanding of, of of that space and those feelings. It must be uh, with concrete outcomes and and also working on the structural changes. And we've been talking about issues uh, amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities for a few years and especially talking about decolonisation. And that really it means change with the way we think about our institutions, um, the rules and, and, and regulatory, regulatory regimes. Uh, we, we need to really change these and also the legal system itself and the funding for legal services. You know, it's always been my mind uh, after you know studying law and, and and several degrees, and I've just come off really understanding um, what benefits there are in in not going to court um, and trying to negotiate, or you know, in these new ideas that we had years ago about collaborative early looking at family law, for example, instead of fighting for for different positions. And I think this is what we're looking at now. We we have to move to justice through. I believe, like Michael Kirby has said for many, many years, is a Bill of Rights. Um, we've, we have a, a few states that have um, a, a human rights charter, but it's not enough. We have to have a formal federal Bill of Rights, uh, and, and that really means that the threshold of everything, whether it's environmental portfolio or water uh, or um, uh, you know, the standard of education or health, it must have uh, measurements uh, as uh, human rights uh, through a Bill of Rights because that's extremely important that we have those thresholds that uh, we can't siphon away or we can't uh, give away at another election where uh, we want to devalue those rights to justice. So I think that it's really important um, for a community and for Australia to be a just nation. We also have to uh, really ensure that we are making uh, huge changes to our infrastructure and our institutions because if they're really not just and if they uh, also have a position where they're failing us, and we've seen that with the health system during the pandemic with COVID, um, there were huge failures in, in, our, in our systems and many of our front, first responders paid a huge price and, and many families who really had no control over uh, looking after their loved ones because of what was going on around us. So, you know, to move into to justice and human rights really means that it, it has to be uh, a collective, a communal, a nation that really have a, has a great desire for just outcomes and just institutions, but also that we see that our children will and, and our children's children will take this up and and will not want to go back where we had uh, little value for human rights. And as we've seen with expats and, and, and people held overseas uh, for, for various reasons and uh, not being able to come back to Australia uh, uh, during that COVID time felt very unjust. And, and Australia's treatment of refugees, for example, has been shocking. Um, and the persecution of, of people such as that uh, uh, family uh, in Bilawila 
it, it's it just breaks your heart that we could be um, so cruel uh, uh, to to allow our politicians uh, to accept that Australian people would find that acceptable. You know, so I think that that's where the humanity comes in, and and we can't just say justice. We have to see it, and we have to be a, a part of it. And, and we have to change. We have to decolonise out of, as I said, these institutions, these frameworks, these beliefs that we've accepted since childhood. We have to relinquish those and we have to find new ways of, of um, making our country uh, a fairer country. And I think that um, this is what gives us hope with the, the current government. There's so many threads of what you've just been saying, Virginia, which I'd love to explore further. And one of those, I guess, is about representation and 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 talking the talk, not not just uh, not just using the words, but actually walking as well. Um, this parliament is a more diverse one. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking with Yasmin Poole and Sonia Palmieri about the representation of women in politics and in parliament, and how important diversity in politics can be. Linda Burney is our first Indigenous woman to hold the position of an Indigenous Affairs Minister. In our recent discussions, we've we've touched on these the role of intersectionality in addressing structural inequality, along with the importance of strong leadership and representation. But what do you think that it means to have a for, for Indigenous women to see this sort of representation? I think for some, and and I, I can only speak when I didn't have um, degrees and I hadn't gone to university. Uh, I would find that a much high expectation for me to really understand and to attain. I think that's we we need role models that are more attainable. And and, and Linda is doing some fabulous work and has been doing some incredible work in in leadership and and bringing communities forward in so many ways. But you know, when, when you're a single mother and when you're, um, you know, in, in a situation of, of being destitute and haven't had an education, it's really hard to attain those goals or to reach for those goals when, when you yourself have so many issues that you need to deal with. Um, but it, it's those steps. And I think what we need to do is, is really work more on, um, saving TAFE and, and all of those little steps in between, you know, mm. it's 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 like the expectation that you know somebody starts to do an undergrad and then immediately jumps into a PhD. I mean that that is not a very comfortable space. So that's how I liken it. I think it's really important to have people who are doing great things, but we also need to to really have communities on the ground who are in um, Tennant Creek or you know um, Elizabeth in South Australia, for example. We need to see um, our our role models and our, our women in those communities sharing and inspiring, um, and our health system providing justice through criminalising uh, drug use, for example. It's a health issue. It's not a it's not a criminal issue, and and I think that we've got to also purge racism, because there's there's so much that we've learnt with Black Lives Matter, and I think that. You know, those are sort of the issues that will come up during uh, the minister's time in government, but also it's a big responsibility because we had expectations when Ken White uh, was there and the first press club he gave uh, was uh, really important because nothing was going to be off the table for The Voice. And then a couple of days later, Minister Dutton had said, well, that's not quite true. There's a lot that's going to be off the table. And and that really uh, took away his rights to to not only voice his own portfolio, but it also had a huge negative impact uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people looking on, where he, he was basically just a shell of a person looking on. There, there was total disrespect, and and that's why I see that it's really a different situation now with Minister Burney. That now there's more respect. The understanding that uh, an, an Aboriginal uh, woman is has quite a, a rightful place to take on a, a huge portfolio. This is not an easy portfolio. This has a lot of twists and turns, and and uh, a lot of uh, very difficult issues to um, to decolonise. Uh, that's what in, is inherited in this portfolio, 
so I, I really do have hope and I also am very encouraged because of the skills that Minister Bernie's had during local government and, and then to state and now federal. So um, all of this government are very prepared because it's a bit like being an understudy. They've um, been waiting for years and, and they're honing their abilities and skills and, and they can see what Australians want and the expectations is that they want things done. And, and we can't just accept, as you've, you've said, you know, that we just talk about justice but we don't see it. And, and we have to see it happen. We have to see change uh, and we have to see the value in every human life. That's really important in this in this new experience that we're, we're really trying to come to terms with and, and letting go of the old. Virginia, one of the, the really interesting things I, I thought that has happened post-election are comments from Foreign Minister Penny Wong um, who proposed or has, has talked about an Indigenous foreign policy. And we we spoke about this to Siobhan MacDonald and George Carter a couple of weeks ago on the pod. George was talking about the, the positive message that that gave to people across the Pacific, um, that Australia was, was finally thinking in this way. And Foreign Minister Wong said, together we can be a self-reliant, resilient nation, confident in our values and our place in the world, and together we can embrace the ordinary statement from the heart. I, I wonder what you think this kinds of, kind of language means for the place of First Nations knowledge systems and knowledge in this country. Well, I think it's very important, and, and uh, also when we do talk about the Pacific, we, we shouldn't forget Asia and many other countries that are, are in the vicinity of Australia. Uh, we have a, a very long connection with the Pacific, and, and I'm working uh, with others such as George, with ICIDs in ANU on a whole range of different issues that we seek to really improve policy and, and outcomes for communities on the ground. So, you know, this is this is a really important space. And, of course, you're talking about knowledge, Indigenous knowledge, and, and much of that came to the fore in the fires, and we've talked about that in, in uh, previously, that um, Indigenous knowledge was celebrated and understood as uh, creating important solutions, but we seem to have a lot of slippage since that 2009 period where, where we had uh, a much clearer idea of the value of Indigenous knowledge. But I think also it, it's really important to see that our uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong, has uh, really warmed the hearts of, of people in the Pacific to generally uh, reach out and and uh, again, in a statement and an understanding of healing, which is Uluru's statement from the heart, but it's always that the Pacific and, and, and Indigenous Australia are very close and we've had those relationships for a very long time, whether it's been with Papua New Guinea or, or our, our northern neighbours uh, and, and the understanding that many people from uh, many of the islands were kidnapped and, and taken to work uh, in Queensland, for example. And, and a lot of Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people uh, have family members who have had that shocking history uh, of, um, of, of what they call blackbirding. And, you know, we have a very strong place in the Pacific and Asia, and that should only increase and increase in establishing better relationships. And it's like all families. You know, sometimes we all walk up in a huff and, and we've you know, just decided to take a couple of years and then come home and, and really, you know, coming home is the most important thing and, and really embracing that, that healing space and also being ready and prepared uh, to assist, to be genuine in that assistance. So I think that that is a very positive movement. And, and again, you know, looking at Uluru's statement from the heart and delving into um, discussions about a federal treaty and really making our institutions across Australia, universities, uh, really more than just a wrap. Uh, uh, I think we need to create so much more employment uh, in institutions so we really are inclusive uh, because uh, at, at the current pace, uh, we're, we're not going to have that diversity and inclusion where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples being part of the solution um, can't happen unless uh, we're there and, and we're in senior positions. So 
I think it's really important that we keep on um, seeing hope through these uh, new areas in um, portfolios such as foreign affairs, but also to understand that um, this is really Australia's um, place in, in really leading on human rights, climate change and a whole range of issues that we really want to take to COP27 and one of those is water security as well and uh, I'm looking forward to, to working on those issues. Virginia, there's there's much more for us to talk about, and we do want to talk about some of those issues, um, particularly around water security and, and environmental issues. But I think we'll take a very quick break now, and we'll be back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back, listeners. We're here with Virginia Marshall, uh, and we've been talking about the Uluru Statement from the Heart about Indigenous representation in politics and about the hope that so many of us feel with a change in government here in Australia just recently. Before the break, we particularly spoke about the shift in language that we've seen from the new federal government uh, and the increase in representation of Indigenous Australians in our federal parliament. Both how we talk and how we appear has changed. But I think the next question might be about digging a little bit deeper in how politics and policymaking in this country could change as we see Indigenous voices, Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous leadership have a stronger place in our formal systems and in public discussion. Virginia, how do you see this shaping the ongoing political discourse? Oh, I think it's essential, uh, again, that where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are uh, in uh, the executive and in great numbers in departments, senior positions where they can affect um, change and guidance and leadership, um, especially uh, as a practising lawyer. I know most of the drafting, especially on Indigenous peoples' legislation and, and in respect to Indigenous issues, is, is rarely uh, drafted or um, uh, seriously consulted has been in the past uh, with very, very few, if any, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So that is is essential. And uh, I've had discussions about that over the years, especially when I was in the uh, Australian Law Reform Commission as a as senior legal, that um, that was the, the time when we were looking at Commonwealth laws and uh, family violence. And the big issue then was income management. And I, I think we had the idea that it was a shocking system. It's inhumane. Uh, it lacked um, human rights and it certainly didn't have justice. But at the time, uh, I remember my boss, um, President Ros- Rosalind Croucher, who's now with the Australian Human Rights Commission, had uh, incredible leadership because uh, she said, well, you know, just run with this and find out what you can and, and look at whole, a whole range of different options for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through this system. And by the time I'd, I'd finished my research, uh, there was a way. There was an opt-in, an opt-out. And for many years we've gone in so many different directions on income management and the, the cashless card and, and a whole range of marginalising and, and inhumane treatment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and also non-Indigenous people as well. And, and my understanding of that situation was really dire and, and it was um, a time where it, there was an opportunity for governments to take that policy and, and make it law. Uh, and we've been going in so many 
negative directions on this policy, uh, as we have with so many others, the environment, for example. But, you know, when lives are at stake and children's lives, uh, and we can see that through the reports in Dondale and, and young children uh, being treated as, as uh, inhumane treatment, you know, we wouldn't do to uh, any people that we cared about, and especially where there's a fiduciary duty, a, a guardianship, uh, a protection of young people, um, it's not acceptable. But yet, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people always uh, can see that reports mostly end up on the shelf. And, you know, even good legislation and the intent of, of many people in Parliament is not enough. So, you know, my hope again for, for this new government is that uh, we, we really bring sensible thinking, um, common sense um, that uh, is also deep with humanity and, and really caring for others. I think that's uh, an, a really important part of this future government because what we've seen in the last couple of years with COVID is that there has been such a compromise on, on humanity and a compromise on, on how we treat others really has um, felt like we've been twisted and turned inside out and normal is not normal anymore. And I think we're all still coming to terms with, you know, how we actually deal with this and how we've dealt with people passing. And, you know, there's there's so many issues that are really um, and do incorporate policy and drafting and, and legislation that needs to be really done with a great uh, deep understanding that what we are doing at uh, this particular time is going to make uh, a huge ripple effect on others. And, um, you know, the ripple turns into an ocean of um, fierce waves. I mean, that's the analogy for me. We, we really have to be conscious that anything that we do from now on has to have a, a threshold of human rights and understanding that we, we really in, in a such uh, an incredible moment of change. So I think that, you know, just to retain our humanity is really important. Virginia, part of the, the shift and the hope that we're seeing includes active discussions about treaty. Um, and as you flagged earlier, that's central to, to the Uluru Statement. In Victoria, the process towards treaty is underway and there is perhaps a, a, a glimmer of possibility now at the federal level that those conversations might start to happen. Treaty may convey to some people a very formal document, but the process of, of Makarata, of agreement making, is deeper than that. Can you talk us through what that process might look like from a legal perspective, but also from a societal perspective, from a perspective of social justice? I think that most people would understand that a, a contract is really important for a whole range of different things that we really experience on a day-to-day -day level. Uh, we get a contract for a house. Uh, we get a contractor for people to do um, a whole range of restorations in our home or you know, our cars, etc. So, you know, we're used to really thinking about contracts and entering in, into those. And I think that the whole issue that is that we shouldn't start from legalism. And this is the whole conversation of people saying, you know, what should we start with first? Should we start with truth-telling or uh, should we first start with uh, Uluru's statement from the heart and, and the voice? So there's all this conversation about what should we do and when should we do it? And the most important uh, issue here is is how how and and with what what heart we do it, what intention we have, and and that's very important here. So it, it would be that we have to have a form of of truth telling, and I think that that is a really important place. But people have to be prepared also to hear and and to speak about those. Um, examples which can include a whole range of different issues as as we've heard from the Royal Commission for example people really bearing their souls and 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 really keeping a lot of these stories in in uh, inside them for 20 30 40 years and you know for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for many of these issues on um, massacres and displacement assimilation and protection um, legislation that, that wasn't protective. Uh, but, you know, many of the experiences Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had in this country has really usurped any feeling of being a human being for many, many years. 
And it's only really been in the late 60s, which is not that long ago, that we've just started to really be united into some parts of the family of, of being Australian. So I think that the truth telling is really important uh, as, a, as one of those first steps. But again, I'm, I'm not wedged, you know, either way or, or the other. But I think that the um, next uh, understanding is that uh, people in Australia really are very well versed, uh, understand clearly why we're doing this. And we've seen um, many policies fail, many e- execution of, of new policy, new laws um, fail because people in Australia don't understand why we're doing it. And and bearing your soul, is, as I said, is, it's, it can be constructive or very destructive. So we need to do that. We need to have people understand what a contract is, and, and which a treaty is, it's not going to be two or three years. Sometimes it can take, you know, 20, 25 years to actually um, get everything right because you don't want to rush uh, the whole process. You want to have that time. And in, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, uh, for the fishing settlements, they took uh, around 25 years. So, you know, it was a generational passing the baton for people really to to take charge and and grow into um, in, into a very good space of, of, of what what we believe was a full negotiation of those the the dispossession uh, and and the rights and and addressing the restoration and compensation and that was envisaged in the Native Title Act as well where you start off with a preamble about justice and and the importance of a racial discrimination act and. Uh, that Aboriginal people have the right to live as, as others, uh, but also in a very special place because, again, you know, when, when I've gone to the UN um, last year for COP26 as a UN um, delegate, it was really clear to me that, you know, sharing to everybody from all over the world in those meetings that, you know, we are the oldest living culture um, in the world, there was no argument from anyone. You know, they recognised that. But in Australia we have to recognise that, our culture and heritage as Indigenous people is really important to every Australian. And that's part of this whole process with treaty. I don't think people generally value it. It's not in the curriculum that um, we, we should be really valued and, 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 and who we are and, and, and who our culture is and what we've experienced. Um, I, I really think that there's still huge gaps in education and also in the profession, across our institutions. So we need to deal with those through this treaty process. So it needs to be all in uh, because we, we can't afford to have any gaps in this process. So I think having that process for however long it takes, and as I said, it could be you know 20 years, it could be 10 years, but we need to do this once and for all. And, and then we can go forward in a nation state where we have, you know, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, not subject to whether the nation state wants us to have certain uh, protections, but they they will be provided. There, there's no holding back. And I think that's what we've had for many, many years, is just really having uh, us feel like we've completely devolved from power or, or making decisions of our own as, as a proud and, you know, significant Indigenous peoples that others recognise across the world. But, you know, I think in this process we will have a, a much better relationship and I think that's what treaties are is relationships. Mm. Really powerful uh, discussion again about the reasons why truth-telling and acknowledgement of our colonial history uh, is completely central to moving forward and acknowledgement of the deep richness of Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous framework, Indigenous country for a long time never ceded. Virginia, last week we spoke to Professor Quentin Grafton on energy, food and water crisis and we spoke about the relations between those three things. He said, particularly when it comes to water and water justice, it begins with truth and integrity. What truth-telling and reflection does Australia need to understand where we are and the direction we need to go, particularly when we're thinking about the environment? Well, I think we first have to understand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are, are in kinship with the, the whole of the environment, uh, with uh, totems, with uh, the experience of you know, identity through water, um, fresh water, salt water, bit of water, um, soaks, uh, jilla. 
you know, this is this is an identity, and I think in Western terms, everything's very much compartmentalised. So for Indigenous Australians, we we have to see that certainly, uh, again, you know, it's having justice and integrity, but um, the truth is also really difficult to 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 listen to and also to express. And and I think again, we need to have more of those um, conversations that lead into these difficult. Um, spaces and yes integrity is really important but integrity uh, on the design integrity of, of co-design it's it's much of what we do in research you know embarking on an ARC um, this year for me it's, it's really uh, important that the integrity of the process and, and and moving forward from that starting point is is right because if it's if it's right then it certainly will be more likely to be positive and not only in the work that it does but in the makeup of of how that project goes forward and what it what it can provide so I think Quentin's right it, it does have to have integrity I would say integrity first because you have to create a place that's safe you have to have cultural safety and and integrity is you know respecting um, uh, a person or not um, to to finding um, commonalities uh, to to have people um, provide respectful places um, and you know yinyamara so respect sharing so that uh, it, to me is um, the most important part of any process whether it's talking about water security or whether it's talking to our Pacific, Pacific brothers and sisters you know there has to be an integrity of of space and place and and once you have that then other important issues will follow but um, starting off um, again in in that in really providing that truthful space you need you need to really have uh, an understanding and a a meeting of the minds with with all Australians Uh, and I don't think we've had that in the past you know there's been political uh, point scoring there's been names there's been undermining women for example we've seen some shocking events happening in in canberra before this um this government came to power and and a devaluing of women and and that and that was really so hard to bear so we don't want to see that 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 must also be brought forward that that respectful space really start with the 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 pivot uh, for australia which is the parliament so it has to lead the way uh, and it has to lead the way with that integrity. If that happens, everything will feed from that in the process of treaty, um, water, care for the environment. We, we really can't let those opportunities fly past us anymore because, um, you know, our children are exhausted. We've been through COVID and we're still going through COVID. There's, we're seeing a lot of the inequities. So we really need to grab hope but start with a, an integrity and a cultural safe uh, space to really um, talk about these issues and 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 have actions. Uh, we have to change, and and that's going to be difficult, but we must change internally and externally. Virginia, there's there's so much there for us to to think about and and to reflect on, and I think it takes us to to an issue that that. I've really been reflecting on since we had a conversation on the pod last year with Kelly O'Shaughnessy from the Australian Conservation Foundation, and she talked about the extent of the mass extinctions that we're seeing of our native animals and the really shocking loss of biodiversity. And Anna Greta and I have talked a lot about that episode, and I think we both found it incredibly confronting, incredibly depressing and saddening. I cannot imagine what it's like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with such deep connection to country to see what's going on. And it would seem to be yet another injustice if Indigenous peoples are are now asked to fix that devastation. But I would love to hear your thoughts on what Indigenous knowledge tells us about how we can start reversing some of those devastating losses that we're seeing. Well, I think I think this is a, a really interesting conversation. I, I was listening to the radio a couple of weeks ago, and there there was a person complaining about the increased um, population of kangaroos, for example, and uh, and basically saying, well, you know, there's fewer um, 
uh, main predators today. You know, the thylacine's gone, for example, many years ago, but dingoes have been poisoned and hunted out of farming areas. And, uh, and they were saying, you know, we'll have to go out and cull them. But the other issue, is, and it's a huge issue, and we've seen this with the fires 2019, and people started to understand why coal-fired farming practices for Aboriginal peoples is so important to land management and water management, is that, you know, we, we've got to see that traditional knowledge and, and understanding how to um, affect it on country means that we have to value Aboriginal people in the first place. We have to value value not only the knowledge, but we have to uh, make sure that, you know, in, in relation to that culling event with kangaroos, Aboriginal people are not on country where they should be on country today. And that's one of the big issues that in the Kimberley, for example, uh, recently in the last few years, uh, Aboriginal people would go up uh, to, for ceremony and to, and to visit areas where the old people have been buried. And uh, farmers would uh, present to the gate with a rifle. You know, these are not old frontier stories. They, these are happening now. And and we're seeing that, you know, water, for example, has been taken out of, of very precious oases. As you mentioned, you know, animal species, the EPBC is, is a total failure. And it's good to see that Minister Plibersek is going to, to address that. But, you know, for us, th- that's our family. You know, that's the, every, every species that we talk about, you know, that's, that's another huge loss of our, our kinship, caring for country. You can't care for country if you've got such a mass extinction happening. And we, we are very high in, in the rates of extinction across the world. And we're only just 230 odd years old. It's just, it's just unbelievable that we've got to talk about whether we should make habitats for koalas or develop in the coastal areas of New South Wales or further further south. It shouldn't be either or. Um, we still um, build on, on floodplains. You know, we've got that discussion now. Aboriginal people have known about these issues, about where, where to actually live and uh, where places are seasonal and reasons why, because places flood. And, and there, there are heating events. Um, there are a whole range of different issues that um, certain places weren't livable, poor access, etc. So what we have to have is we have to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on country and welcomed, you know, by landholders uh, to provide environmental services and, and also that, for example, uh, many of the parks that we hold under national parks um, need to be uh, really held by Aboriginal uh, peoples uh, with the financial support to really run these um, areas with cool fire farming practices and and really take a, a position of management because that's the issue we have here. Um, when we have only scientists involved, legal drafters involved or policy experts involved, if, if you're sitting around the room, and this is what I've said with climate change a couple of years ago, you're sitting around the room and there are no Aboriginal people or Torres Strait Islander people in relation to areas of Queensland, then that is not a, a conversation you want to have. You know, we have to be on country. We have to be caring for country, not just in in, in unique areas and specific areas, smaller areas in Australia. This has to be across the whole of Australia. And we need to be in the room. We need to be making a difference and we need to be having um, the conversation about devolving power and, and opportunities to Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. And, and we certainly are not speaking about these issues. We, we talk about in this legalism that, you know, if we have better laws and uh, if we have uh, compliance uh, and we have uh, higher penalties, uh, that, you know, things will change. But, but we've got some really archaic local government laws about development and state development. Uh, people are living in little boxes, you know, 300 square metres, 400 square metres, total strangers and not a tree in sight. That's not the way we should live. Um, that's, not, <laughs> that's not fit for human purpose and it's not fit for purpose. So that's why we have to change and we have to really talk about these things with truth-telling, with the process of integrity and, and also um, with treaty. Again, it, it comes back to Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people must be there on country and welcomed. And, and that's where their respect for traditional knowledge and Indigenous knowledge starts. 
You know, it's not just a consuming the Indigenous knowledge and then using it without Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We have to really be there and we have to share. But we, we can't just be a visitor because we're not. <laughs> we're, we're, we, we are just part of the scenery. It's really important for us uh, in Caring for Country to be there and, and be seen and, and, and to teach people. But in, inevitably, it can't happen without us. That's really the story. It really is a conversation that we could continue for many hours. And it, it, listening to you speak about these complex problems and generously showing us how if we listen to Indigenous voices, if we understand and learn small, even small amounts of Indigenous knowledge structures, particularly around caring for country, what an extraordinary change might take place in how we care for ourselves and how we care for the planet. Virginia, you know we're going to wrap up today's conversation shortly and we commonly ask our, our guests to finish with one piece of advice for policymakers in Australia. We'd love your thoughts on how to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices, experience, knowledge and leadership continue to be at the forefront for Australia's way forward. And I think the most important thing is, is what I've just said a minute ago is you know, if you're looking around your room uh, in your office space, uh, whether you're a policy drafter or, you know, you, you're t- discussing legislative reform, uh, if you're uh, in an institution and uh, you're teaching Indigenous um, issues or uh, different areas of knowledge and Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are not there, they're not sitting there, they're not in that space, they're not talking about um, their understanding and their knowledge uh, then you have to seriously change uh, the way you do things. If, if that's not happening again, it, it's not a healthy space. Um, it's not a, a place of integrity. So the most important thing to, to start to be inclusive and, and to really ensure those actions take place is that you don't accept um, these old ways of doing. Uh, we, we need to really ensure that it, it it has um, an incredible uh, cultural integrity and, and the humanity shines through in these areas. I think that's the hope, again, coming back to what we were talking about, the hope of this new era is that we can do things uh, so much better and with much more love and also with the idea that the Uluru State from, from the heart is more needed now uh, in what we've been through as a nation than ever before. And, and that's just uh, the expression of healing. Virginia, we will bring this conversation to a close. As Anna Greta said, um, we could continue for much longer. We would love to have you back again to, to talk through these issues more and, and perhaps a little way down the track to reflect on where our new government has taken us. But for today, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute privilege uh, to talk with you today. So, Virginia Marshall, thank you. Thank you. Manangul. Sharon, what an extraordinary discussion. It's such a privilege to listen to Virginia describing the tremendous advantages of Australia listening to Indigenous voices, uh, just how much we might learn. It did strike me that there are themes with today's discussion that go back to the conversation we had last week with Quentin Grafton and those two central themes of integrity and truth-telling. That, that the need for honesty, the need for, for detailed discussion and for, for integrity and commitment to the way in which we care for each other, the way in which we work, the way in which we research and the sorts of policies that we might develop. We've got such a lot, of, lot to learn from, from Indigenous uh, voices and we do need to make sure that they are central to a discussion. Yes, absolutely. I, I think this conversation today with Virginia followed on so powerfully from the conversation that we had with Quentin. The other part of, of today's conversation that really struck me and that I think is so important are the points that Virginia was making around the importance of recognising, respecting and advancing human rights and human dignity. And I think that came through in so many of the points that she made we have had quite a long period in this country where human rights have really been not just put into the into the shadows but really disregarded and neglected and i think virginia's comments give us such a, a powerful example 
of why rights matter, why human dignity matters, and how those things are so central to justice. So she she really does give us some powerful ideas for moving forward. Ideas that fit perhaps with a hashtag value care. I think so. Listeners, this podcast is produced by policyforum.net. We'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've mentioned on today's pod in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes and our past episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We always love to hear feedback. And it's the best way, of course, for other people to find our podcast. We love hearing from your, the audience and so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net or via the Policy Forum pod Facebook group. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.